The reading this evening is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the women you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and with clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? (coughs) Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's house hold from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Well, welcome back to church, albeit still through a screen, and hopefully that will change soon. And especially warm welcome to you, if church really isn't your thing, but because of COVID, you thought, maybe I should learn a little bit about God, and you've been, you've been logging on and listening to these talks. If that's you, especially warm welcome to you. It's so good to have you with us on this uh, Sunday evening. Now, we've been walking our way through a series called Abraham, God's First Disciple, and as Andrew was reading that passage, if you've been with us for a little while, and if you're quite, still quite sharp at the end of a lazy Sunday, you might have felt a sense of um, deja vu, 
the sense that you've been somewhere before. Déjà vu, the sense that you've been somewhere before. Déjà vu, the sense that you've been somewhere before. Déjà, you get the point. Tonight's story sounds a lot like a story we read about a couple months ago in chapter 12. You see, at the end of chapter 12, and also tonight in chapter 20, the same story seems to be occurring. Abraham and Sarah lie about her identity. They tell people around them that she's his sister, not his wife. And as a result of this, one of the kings wants to marry, and does marry, Sarah. Back in chapter 12, it was Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and tonight it's Abimelech, the local king. Both kings get cursed, and in both cases, Abraham walks away with a lot of loot. And so therefore, we're struggling with the same sort of concepts as we did back in chapter 12. So instead of doing that tonight, let me point you to an excellent, excellent sermon uh, by our youth pastor, Grant Vandermerver, who did that in chapter 12, and let me commend to you that particular sermon, and you find a lot of the answers there. But for tonight, instead of digging into the details of tonight's passage, I want us to take a jumbo jet above it, back when we could take jumbo jets, and we want to use this passage to help us understand how best to read the Bible. Now, when I read the Bible, I think of going to Ikea. Now, I'm not getting any commissions by Ikea, but I do think of going to Ikea. You see, when we, read, when we go to Ikea, it's not just a shop, it's an experience. On the left-hand side of Ikea, what you see is a whole bunch of items grouped together. You have all the stools together, you have all the beds together, you have all the, uh, all the tables together. So if you want to buy a stool, just walk into that area, look around. But on the right-hand side of Ikea, you'll see different rooms, and each room is different. Bedrooms, studies, kitchens, and inside that room, say the bedroom, you'll see a bed, a bedside table, a lamp, all these different things that make up the room and you can sort of see it in its context. And when we read the Bible, it's like that. Sometimes we want to just look at what the Bible says about a certain topic, a certain item. End of last year, we looked at the topic of discipleship, and we jumped around the Bible, picking up verses that talked about those items, those topics. The fancy word for this is systematic theology, but it's just looking at different themes in the Bible. But this year, we've been walking through the Bible chapter by chapter, room by room. And the fancy word for this is biblical theology, or listening to the Bible story. And inside each room, we see different elements of God. Tonight, we'll see sin, we'll see retribution for sin, we'll see following God's chosen one. And so we get to see all those things together in that room. Now, because we are walking through our way through this, this room scenario, this biblical theology scenario, let me give you a tool that will help you read the Bible that way. And hopefully this will be a gift that keeps on giving as you read God's Word by yourself at home in the months and years to come. When we, read, when we read the Bible, we actually see that the Bible is one big story. And so the way we can read the Bible is using the West Wing method. If you're in one of my small groups or you're a 7 p.m. small group leader, this is revision for you, so just revise. But for everyone else, West Wing was a TV series that aired about 10 years ago. And like all TV series, it was a big story that spanned seven years. But each episode added to that story. And so at the beginning of each West Wing episode, you hear a drum roll, and you would hear the voiceover saying, previously on the West Wing. And then they'll give you scenes from previous episodes, which are particularly helpful for you to understand what's happening in this episode that you're going to watch tonight. And likewise with the Bible. We want to, the very first question we're going to ask ourselves is, what's happened in the Bible so far? Because what's happened before will actually help us understand what's happening now in a good way. 
The second question we need to ask ourselves is what's actually happening? We have to watch the episode of West Wing. We have to read that chapter in the Bible. And when we read that chapter in the Bible, we ask ourselves a third question. What does it teach us about God? You see, the Bible's not just a random collection of stories. It's actually written by one author, God, the Holy Spirit. And he wants us to know something, learn something about God, his character, how he does things. So third question, what does it teach us about God? Now, especially in the, in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves a fourth question, is, and that is, what, the, what does it teach us about how God does things in Jesus? You see, the Bible is one continuous story, and some things don't change. God's character, for instance. But other parts of the Bible do change when Jesus comes. So in the Old Testament, what we see is that if you want to get right with God, you have to go to a temple, because that's where people met God. You have to kill a, cow, or you have to kill a goat or a dove and get your sins washed away. But in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, you don't have to go to a temple anymore. You meet God in the real temple, Jesus. And you don't bring, you don't bring a, a, a sacrifice because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. So you don't have to come to church on a Sunday and bring a goat and have one of the pastors kill it and there'll be blood everywhere. That'd be terrible because Jesus has paid that price already. So some things in the Bible don't change, but some things do change. And we need to ask ourselves the question, has the thing that we're looking at changed because of Jesus? And the last question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we change as a result of encountering God in tonight's passage? Now, because God is a perfect God and we are still imperfect and sinful people, then for us to relate to him, we need to be continually changing. And sometimes that change occurs in our head. We learn something new about God. Sometimes it occurs in our hearts. We feel something with more passion or more intensity than before. And sometimes it's actually a change in the way we do things, our hands. So head, hearts and hands. But something should change every time we encounter God because he's perfect and we're not. And as we ask ourselves these five questions, uh, God will bless us greatly as we read his word. Now, super quickly, the other side of things, the theme side of things, I call the Google method. And in the Google method, the first question we ask is, is this an important question? Like, for instance, if you were to Google uh, Tom Takura's favorite dessert on Google, you get zero hits because no one cares. But if you, if you Googled coronavirus, then you get a million, billion hits because that's really important to the world right now. And likewise, when we have a particular topic and we want to seek God's counsel on it, we have to ask, is this an important topic to God? And a good way to do this is to get yourself a Bible dictionary and look it up and see if it is. If there's a lot of hits, if there's a, lot, is a, a big article on it, it, it is important. If there's no article, then maybe it's not that important. Now, after that, we actually have to look up the verses in the Bible and read what God says about those things, like we did during the discipleship series. And a good way to do this is to get yourself a concordance. A concordance is like a telephone book, but instead of names and telephone numbers, you've got, you look up your word and it gives you the verses in the Bible. And then you go away and actually read those verses and ask the same last three questions as in the West Wing Method. What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about God in Jesus, especially for Old Testament passages? And how do we need to change as a result? But tonight we're not going to use the Google Method. Tonight we're going to use the West Wing Method. So let me walk you through the West Wing Method. Question one, what has happened so far? All right. Now, usually on my slides, you'll see a little slide that says previously. Previously on the West Wing, previously in the Bible, what's happened so far? And it's important to know what's happened in the whole Bible, but in particular, what's immediately happened before the passage we're reading. And for us tonight, the, the most important things is from verse 12 through to verse 19, when we first meet Abram, to just last week, Sodom and Gomorrah. So what's happened in, verse, in chapter 12? Well, God makes a promise to Abram. And he makes his promise and has three parts. The first one is he's going to give him as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. The second promise is he's going to have a land to live in. And the third promise is whoever curses him will be cursed. 
Whoever blesses him will be blessed, and God will bless the whole world through his offspring. And since chapter 12, God has in many times reminded Abram that he's going to have a son. And just a couple of weeks ago in chapter 17, he says, you're going to have a son in just one year. Spoiler alert, that happens next week in chapter 21. So come back to that one. Isaac's going to come. And just last week in chapter 19, we saw God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. And that brings us to today's passage, chapter 20. Well, let's ask ourselves a second question. What is happening now? And I'm going to roll it in with the third question. What does it teach us about God? So usually on my slides, you'll see uh, this week something's happening. So previously, this week, happened, happening. And today we're going to roll in what does it teach us about God? And we're going to see three things in tonight's passage that teach us about God and how he does things. First thing, we'll see a sin being committed. Second thing, we'll see that God requires reckoning for that sin. And thirdly, we'll see that if you align yourself with the chosen one of God, then you will be blessed. Now, once again, we're not going to go through this in great depth because we're going to just fly over the top of things. But let me encourage you to open a, a window right here next to me and have uh, BibleGateway.com, type in Genesis 20 and have that text in front of you so you can look at the text and also listen to me talk at the same time. All right, let's look at the first bit, sin. And we, we see that in verses 1 through to 7. Well, initially there is a sin that's committed. And who commits it? It's Abraham and Sarah. They go to a new plate, part of the world and they tell everyone that Sarah is actually Abraham's uh, sister and not her, his husband. And as a result, the king Abimelech says, oh, I want to have her in my harem. So he marries her. Now, if you just want to pause there for a moment, I always read these verses and I think, wow, Sarah is now 20, I'm sorry, she's not 20 years old, she's 90 years old now. She must have been a gorgeous woman. You know, I wish they had mobile devices back then because it would have been great to get a bit of a selfie of Sarah and see what she looked like in her 90s, that kings would want to marry her. But there, there you go, she was like that. And King Abimelech wanted to marry her and did marry her. Now, after he marries her, God comes to him in a dream and says to Abimelech, you are a dead man because you married a married woman. And Abimelech's like, well, I didn't know. She said he was her brother. He said she was his sister. It's not my fault. And God says, yes, I know it wasn't your fault. You didn't know, but a crime is a crime whether you know about the law or not. And so you, you didn't so much commit murder. You committed manslaughter. And so therefore I kept you from sleeping with her. But you return her right away, otherwise I will kill you. And also we find out later on in the passage that actually God curses Abimelech's household and none of the women in that household can actually have children. Which is very important because if God had let Abimelech sleep with Sarah, next chapter when Isaac is born, we would never be really sure if it was Abraham's son or Abimelech's son. But God works in grace even in this tricky situation and stops him from Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah as a result safeguarding Isaac's identity and also allowing Abimelech not to die for this crime he's committed. And from this we see that God won't sweep sin under the carpet. God takes sin seriously. He takes seriously the sin of Abraham and Sarah, and he certainly takes seriously the sin of Abimelech. That's the first thing we see tonight. Next, we see that God requires reckoning for sin, and we see this in verses 8 through to 16. Right? And the very first way that um, God seeks reckoning is that Abraham gets called out for his sin. And he's called out by the pagan king of this area, Abimelech. Abimelech gathers his officials and says, what have you done to us? Why did you lie to us? Why did you cause us to do these things? Why did you cause God's curse to be upon us? What's going on? 
And Abraham comes up with some feeble excuse, which holds no water whatsoever. He says, well, firstly, I came in here and, um, and uh, I knew you were a godless bunch. You don't, you don't fear God. And so I thought you'd kill me for my wife. But the irony, of course, is Abimelech's the one who's fearing God at this point. And Abraham is the one who doesn't fear God. Abraham has heard God's promises time and time again. Abraham's made the mistake of trying to have his own heir through Hagar, Sarai's uh, slave. And he hasn't learned yet. And he hasn't cared that God has a plan for the whole world and it's going to come through his son. He just wants to save his own skin. And so he's willing to give his wife away and have her marry the king and just end all God's promises right there. Abraham, ironically, is the one who doesn't fear God. And Abimelech here is the one who does. And after this, Abimelech makes a payment. He gives Sarah back to Abraham, like God said, so he wouldn't die. He also gives a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of livestock, and a whole bunch of slaves to Abraham as well. And, in the, and Abraham gets wealthy through this. But what I want us to see from this particular section is that God requires reckoning for sin. And certainly Abimelech paid for his sin. Now, I know there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. Well, how come Abraham didn't have to pay? Why did, why did Abimelech have to pay? Uh, and to the answer to all of those questions, you'll find in, once again, Grant's very helpful talk in chapter 12. So let me commend you that. But for, for tonight, God requires reckoning for sin. It has to be paid for. Now, the last thing. <clears throat> we find out at the end, in verses 17 through to 18, that there is an alignment. Whoever aligns themselves to God's chosen one is blessed. After Abimelech gives back Sarah and gives all these things to Abraham, then Abraham prays to God, and God blesses Abimelech. He heals the curse his family can have children again, which totally lines up with what he said in chapter 12, because in chapter 12, he said, those who curse you will be cursed, and those who bless you will be blessed, and I'm going to bless the world through your offspring. We see uh, earlier on uh, that the, uh, there's a there's a, um, there's, a bunch of, there's a war going on, and some of these bad kings capture Lot. And so Abraham goes and assembles a coalition of willing, and he does a Liam Neeson on them, or Arnold Schwarzenegger, depending on how old you are. And he goes and wipes them out and gets Lot back. He gets Lot back. Those who go against Abraham, God's chosen one, are themselves cursed. We also see that those who align themselves with Abraham are blessed. Uh, Abraham prays for Ishmael. And Ishmael survives and becomes the father of nations. God, uh, Abraham prays for Lot, and he's saved out of Sodom. And right here, when Abimelech goes against Abraham by taking his wife, he's cursed. His family can't have children. And when Abimelech blesses Abraham with stuff and by handing his wife back, he's blessed. His family's healed. Those who are aligned with God's chosen one are blessed. Now, as we look at this, we sort of think, well, that's, yeah, I can see what's going on here, but Abraham is hardly a hero. I mean, he did some great stuff, but he also made some terrible mistakes, didn't he? And these situations here are kind of messy. And so it doesn't really sound like the promise of chapter 12 has come true. How is Abraham's offering going to bless the world? He's only blessed one king here, one person there. And so we sort of scroll forward in time, and we see, well, maybe Joseph is what these guys are talking about, because Joseph actually ends up helping Egypt to survive a famine. But that's just one country and one region. Well, maybe we should look a bit further out in time. Maybe it's Solomon, who was very rich and very wise, and he sort of blessed many nations, but once again, only in that part of the world, and certainly not the sort of glorious promise of chapter 12. And we keep looking down the line, and we're supposed to, because the Old Testament is screaming out that all of these systems and all of these people are good and bad in their own sense, but 
there must be something that's perfect coming down the line. And we see that in Jesus. All God's promises find a yes in Christ Jesus at the end. And that's why the fourth question to our West Wing method is, what does this teach us about God in Jesus? Now, God does many things in Jesus. The three that line up for our, for our section tonight is sin, reckoning, and alignment once again. Well, first of all, sin. God won't sweep sin under the carpet. God takes sin seriously. That's why Jesus came to earth to deal with man's sin. And God in the New Testament is still a God of justice, and we want him to be. In Hebrews 10, it says, For we know who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. Again, the Lord will judge his people, and it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Oftentimes, you hear people say, the God of the Old Testament is the God of Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone, and the God of the New Testament is the God of love and compassion. That's only half true. The God of the Old Testament is also a God of love and compassion, and the God of the New Testament is also a God of justice and judgment. And we want that, don't we? We don't want to think that there's a God out there who lets Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden just get away with stuff. We want there to be justice one day. God takes sin seriously. He won't sweep it under the carpet. Not in Abraham's day, not in Jesus' day, and not in our day. Well, next thing, God demands a reckoning for sins. See, just in chapter 19, we saw that God nuked Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. And, you know, God should nuke us for our sin. But in the New Testament, this is where it's different to the Old Testament because Romans 8 tells us that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the New Testament, there's a disconnect from the Old Testament because now the nuclear bomb doesn't fall on Sodom or Gomorrah or us. It falls on Jesus. And that's how God reckons sin. Well, lastly, we see alignment. Those who are aligned to God's chosen one are blessed. And we see this in the famous John 3.16, but also more clearly, 20 verses down. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes, trusts, follows in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. And down 20 verses, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You see, if you align yourselves with God's chosen one, Jesus now, not Abraham anymore, then you will receive eternal life. And if you don't align yourself with God's chosen one now, Jesus, well then God's wrath actually remains on you. And that's what we see in Jesus, the perfect version of Abraham. Now, we've got a whole bunch of information in our heads. What do we do with all this? Well, we need to change, don't we, as a result of meeting God in this chapter. Our head, our hearts, and our hands must change. How? Well, if you're um, not usually a churchgoer, but you've decided to investigate God in this COVID season, then it's fantastic that you're doing it. It is the best thing you could be doing in your pandemic. So let me commend you for doing it, and, and it's so good to have you with us on a, Saturday, on a Sunday night. But if that's you, what you've heard tonight is that, you know, God takes sin seriously. He doesn't just sweep it under the table. Now, I'm, I'm sure you're a nice person, you're kind, you're generous, and, and all that sort of stuff, uh, but that is, morality isn't the whole story of sin and, and righteousness in the Bible. You see, a simple definition for sin in the Bible is simply not treating God as God. See, God says, I, love, I made you, I love you, I made the world, I love the world, and so therefore I want you to love the world and love me. 
And when we don't love other people, it's not just being mean and horrible, which it is, and it's bad for them, bad for us, but it's also saying, I don't care what you think, God. I don't care that you want me to love the people that you love. I'm not going to love them. I don't care what you think. And when God says, I, I love you, I want you to love me, and we say, God, you don't exist, and even if you do exist, I don't agree with you, so have nothing to do with you, or even if you do exist, I'm just too busy for you, then the Bible says that's sin, and God takes that very seriously. And so now you know, and we've all done it, haven't we? And so God takes it seriously, and we need to contemplate our sin. The second thing is we've seen that God requires reckoning for our sin. We've seen tonight that, yes, God is a God of love and compassion and forgiveness and grace and all of those things, but we also see that God is a God of justice, and we want that. We want that of the Bin Ladens and the Hitlers of the world, but we actually want that for us as well in our sin. And God requires a reckoning. Sometimes you walk into a church and all you hear is fire and brimstone, Sodom and Gomorrah, and other churches you hear just that God is love and God is kind. You're only getting half a story. I hope tonight you've seen the whole picture. We're not just giving you a, a marketing spiel saying it'll be good, but you actually hear the whole truth about God. And lastly, we've seen that those who align themselves with God will be blessed. And you've already started that process, haven't you, by, by checking out churches and checking out God. So let me encourage you to keep on investigating God. Reach out, send us an email, ask us a question. Uh, and in due time, when COVID uh, restrictions lift, uh, let me encourage you to come actually physically into St. Andrews and visit us and meet us. And if you're from another part of the world, then send us an email and we'll do our best to put you in touch with a good church around you in the area as well. But thank you so much for spending Sunday night with us. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are someone who's like Abraham, a disciple of God, then tonight we've been reminded, haven't we, that God takes sin seriously, even our sin. And so we need to be taking our sin seriously and not just keep on sinning like it doesn't matter, because it does matter. And some of, sometimes we don't even see our own sin. So let me encourage you tonight, even after this service, say a short prayer to God and ask him, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to please you more, God. Please show me my sin. And please show me how to change, how to repent of that sin. God takes it seriously and we need to as well. The second thing we saw is that God demands reckoning for our sin. And for us who are Christians, that doesn't fall on our heads anymore. It falls on Jesus' head. And so we need to be thankful for that. Now, many of us have been at church for a long, long time, and we just say, yeah, 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 Jesus died for my sins. I'm saved now. Move on. But that can't be our attitude, can it? Jesus died for our sin. Jesus took the nuclear bomb that was supposed to land on my head. We need to be thankful again. And if you're a bit old and cold towards Jesus and this message of a gospel, then once again, let me encourage you to pray and just ask God to reignite that fire in your heart, to be thankful again that Jesus pays for our sins and not us. And also while we're doing that, let me encourage you to, instead of judging others for their sins, forgive others. And once again, I know sometimes it's very hard to forgive because other people have really hurt us in the past and it's really hard to let go. But once again, let me encourage you, ask God, just give you a soft heart to forgive those people instead of judging them. And lastly, we saw that those who align themselves with the chosen one of God will be blessed. We are the ones who have aligned ourselves with the chosen one of God. So let me encourage you, in COVID and out of COVID, keep on pursuing Jesus hard. Love him, serve him, live his way, read his word, love other people practically and also with the love of Christ. Keep on doing this and don't get distracted when COVID lifts. Keep on following Jesus because that's the very best thing you could be doing. We've aligned ourselves with the chosen one of God. Let's keep following him and keep honoring him. Well, tonight, 
we've been given a little tool, I hope, that will help us read Old Testament passages like Genesis 20. And it's called the West Wing Method. We have to ask ourselves, what's happened? What's happening? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about God in Jesus? And how can we change to be more like Jesus in our head, our hearts, and our hands? I hope and pray that this little tool will be very useful to you and it will be a gift that keeps on giving in the months and years ahead as you read the Bible together with us, but also on your own as well. Thanks so much for joining us on Sunday night, and I hope to see you again next week. Now, I have just some questions for mm, Tom. Yes. Okay, Tom, first question that's come in is, mm. why was it a sin for Abimelech to take Sarah as a wife? Pretty tough when he didn't know Sarah was married to Abraham. And why does Abraham get a reward when he acted very inappropriately? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, two parts. Let me answer the first bit. Why was, uh, a, why was it a crime or was it a sin for Abimelech to marry Sarah's wife, um, even though he didn't know? Um, I think we actually understand this because even in our society, um, we can't just plead ignorance when we commit a crime. Not knowing about something is not an excuse for when you do something wrong for you not to get um, penalized for it. And so here Abimelech the same thing. Just because he didn't know, um, it doesn't mean he's, he's innocent. Uh, he probably should have done some more due diligence. I don't know. Um, the second part of the question is, why is it right for Abraham to get, uh, to get benefits from it and Abimelech to lose stuff? And once again, the answer to this question is kind of tricky because this is a story, it's a narrative, and that's just the way it happened. Um, there's no explanation for it per se, but it's just how God works. The second part of the answer is God has an economy which is different to our economy. We, t- we tend to think in terms of traffic fines or speeding fines. If we, if we speed a certain distance, a uh, certain above a speed limit, then we get a certain fine with certain points. If we speed some more, we get more points and more dollars. But God has a bigger picture that we don't always understand. And so oftentimes, even in the Psalms, uh, the psalmists complain, God, why do evil men seem to get away with things? And why do good men seem to suffer? And in other parts of the Psalms, it actually says, good men will prosper and evil men will not prosper. So is this thing going on in the fallen world. And lastly, I guess the last part of the answer to that question is, well, the biggest example of where a good man gets bad stuff on him is actually Jesus. He gets all of our sin on him, even though he's totally innocent and perfectly good, and yet God puts on him the punishment that was ours. And so God's got an economy which is different from ours. We don't know exactly, specifically in each point of the story, how this works. But having said that, we know the overall picture is God is good to those who follow him. And so we can trust that. I thought with Abimelech, it was especially uh, shining through that God stopped him from sinning further. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Grace even in that hard time. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for that, Tom. Mm. Uh, So, Tom, next question. Are there lying actions Mm. that can be grouped as righteous deceptions to mislead tyrants, such as Hebrew midwives deceiving Pharaoh? Yeah, fantastic question. And... And this is worthy of a month worth of sermons and books and books and books have been written on this, this question. Um, can we ever do something bad that actually leads to something good? And is, does that make that action, does it end just by the means? Um, generally speaking, no. God tells us to do what's right and good and so we should just do it. But on certain special occasions, and they are certain and special, it might actually work out best if we do something which is a bit dodgy. Now that kind of sounds a bit weird. We talked about the Hebrew midwives, and we talked about the German, the regular Germans who actually lied to the Nazis about having Jews in their house. And so is that good? Is it bad? It's hard to tell. Um, all I can do is like, recommend a very good book to you. Uh, it's called um, Mutual Love Relationships by a guy called Michael Hill. Hill that's it. Yes. And, and he, he explains it really clearly there. But overall, as a general trend, when God tells us don't bear false witness, we don't bear false witness. And we don't make it a habit to do it and somehow make up an excuse for it. Somehow it'll lead to good.